Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. We are finishing up, everyone loves those words, finishing up our series on social justice this morning, and we are finishing up by laying out the biblical alternative. This is the second half of a two-part message uh, in Ezekiel 18, as we talked about, um, began talking last week about the saving gospel. So this is the saving gospel part two. Next week, I believe, don't hold me to this, I haven't done all my research, but I think we'll be looking at Psalm 150. If we're not looking at Psalm 150, we're going to look at another psalm. We're going to spend time rejoicing and thanking God next Sunday together as it will be Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, we don't want to ever forget all that God has done for us, and we want to remember. And so, Jake, just giving you a heads up, let's, let's do some praise and Thanksgiving music all the way through. And uh, we'll look at a psalm, I think Psalm 150. That's where I'm leaning. But again, uh, was, what's that? Murphy's Law, I reserve the right to change my mind at any time or uh, do something different. I know that's supposed to be for women, I think, but, uh, but I'll assume that for myself today, uh, this week. But um, anyway, we'll be, and someday we'll get back to, I believe, first of the year, back to the, the Gospel of Matthew and working our way through that uh, passage by passage, text by text. The question we began asking last week and started to answer, and we'll continue to look at it this week, is social justice an essential part of the gospel? The word essential is essential to the question. Is social justice an essential part of the gospel? We're asking the question, must we accomplish social transformation as a part of the gospel, or is social transformation a result of the gospel? So we must remember that the transformation that social justice requires, even demands, is this. Equitable opportunities and outcomes for everyone. Fair distribution of wealth and equal opportunity. That is the transformation in society that social justice requires and demands. And is that kind of transformation an essential part of the gospel? Or would uh, equality and fairness and what God has come as a result of the gospel? Now, to, ag- to accomplish their goal, social justice divides all mankind into two groups. Oppressor and oppressed, the powerful and the powerless, the privileged and the marginalized, victimizers and victims. So the question every person is forced to ask with that sort of dichotomy is, which one are you? Are you a victim or a victimizer? Well, if those are your only two choices, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a victimizer? Do you want to have to confess to being someone who's victimized others, a part of a victimizing class? Or would you prefer to be on the receiving end as a victim because with victimhood comes moral authority and the ability to receive reparations or to have others give you a boost up, those kinds of ideas. Now, biblical Christians completely agree that society is unjust. There's no way to look around the world and say that everything that is done is always right, is always good, is always fair, is always true, is always just. There's no denying that. The question is, why? Why are things unjust? And the answer that comes from the scripture is this. Society is comprised of sinners. There is injustice because people are sinners. Because every human being is a sinner, we have all been victimized by someone else's sin. And yet we have all victimized others through our own sin. So you sit here this morning 
both a victim of others' sin and a victimizer of others through your own sin. No one here has moral high ground over anyone else in this idea that comes from Scripture, the teaching of Scripture. The Bible teaches equality, the equality of mankind in three specific ways. First of all, every human being is a creature made in the image of God, their creator, and bears equally the image of God. We are all equally image bearers of God. That's why we do not want to use the social category, the scientific category, the unbiblical category of race, because it seeks to divide us up and distribute equality differently. No, we don't want to use that. We might talk about, as the Bible does, ethnicities, and the different kinds of skin colors there are in the world, but we are all equally made in the image of God. And when we forget that, then we lose equality when we lose the image of God biblically demonstrated. Secondly, every human being is born a sinner and in rebellion sins against their creator, bearing guilt equally and equally under the just judgment of God's wrath. We are equally image bearers of God, but we are equally sinners who have rebelled against our creator, and we equally bear guilt and the judgment that comes from that guilt. That's equality across the board for every human being. Thirdly, every human being is equally in need of a savior from sin and equally in need of reconciliation with God, their creator. That's the equality that is universal in the world, and that is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the Bible from cover to cover. And we must understand what equality, as God defines it, as God gives it to us in the scripture, looks like. And so you, you have to face individually and personally the fact that you are made in the image of God. And yet you violated God's image and being the image bearer by rebelling against his commands, by refusing to submit to his authority, and now are under the just condemnation and penalty for that sin. But if you turn to Jesus Christ, trusting in him who died on the cross for your sin, trusting in him who lived a sinless life, the only human being to live a sinless life, bringing righteousness to all who trust in him, if you trust in him, by faith, you will be saved through grace. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you will be saved that is the good news of the gospel. And that is the good news for every single person in the world today. Every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live. That's the gospel. That's the saving good news. And equally, we preach that to all. The conversion of sinners depends on their recognition that they are not fundamentally victims of someone else, and they are definitely, definitely not victims of an indifferent or hostile God. That's, that's the starting point. When you concede to sinners that they are only victims of other people's wrongs, you put up a barrier to the necessary full responsibility for sin that drives the broken sinner to God for deliverance from sin and death and hell. So John MacArthur summarizes it this way. The gospel doesn't open up until the sinner takes full responsibility for his sin. That is where the gospel begins. And social justice puts certain people into a victim category only. And therefore, they have no guilt. They have no sin. They are only owed certain things. They owe no one else anything, and they owe God nothing. They have no guilt. They have no shame 
they are fine. And that removes the good news of the gospel. It also removes for the victimizer, because the victimizer can never change groups, can never get out of the victim category. It removes the possibility for reconciliation with God and having our guilt taken care of. Being called clean, being called forgiven, reconciling not only with God, but with one another. Victimizer and victim represented and reconciled across across the, 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 the span there. So that is some understanding of where we come to Ezekiel 18 and the understanding of our culture and the situation we find ourselves in. So before we dig into Scripture, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. We're so grateful for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us to illuminate our eyes and ears and hearts to understand the truth from God's Word. I pray that that he will work in this place at this time in each person, that we might see, hear, understand, and be transformed by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel 18, we're going to jump in near the end of the chapter in verse 21. So Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 21, follow along in your Bible as I read through the end of the chapter. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he has for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is God's word. He's inspired an errant, infallible word to us this morning. May we listen to it. Our theme is this. Social justice is not a part of the saving gospel. Social justice is not a part of the saving gospel. In fact, social justice is a different gospel. You must either believe and teach the social gospel or the saving gospel. You cannot mix the two. 
Social justice that we are facing in our time is simply a retrofitted social gospel. And that comes from way back, decades ago, even into the 1800s. The social gospel is the belief and practice that working to change society is the good news. We preach the good news by working to change society. Notice how the proclamation is changed by action. It's not so much what we say, it's what we do. And so you've heard things like, what would Jesus do? Some of you have bracelets and all that. What would Jesus do? That, that thought and that book and the author of that book, I think his last name is Sheldon, came out of the social gospel movement. You know, have you ever heard this? Uh, give the gospel, if necessary, use words. Or is it, maybe it's preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. What? Yeah, we preach the gospel in what we do. We don't necessarily preach the gospel with what we say. Now, now and then we might have to say a few words. That, that's not the saving gospel. That's the social gospel. It replaces Christ's mission of making disciples and makes social work the means of salvation. It sees society's ills as the greatest problem and social work as the great solution. But biblical Christians know that sin is society's greatest problem and the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is the only salvation. Now last week we looked at verses uh, 1 through 20 and verse 18. And the theme of the entire chapter is this, the soul who sins shall die. Each individual shall die for their own sins. Now the Israelites were claiming that God was punishing them for the sins of their fathers. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, but whose, uh, whose teeth are set on edge? The children's teeth are set on edge. They were claiming that God was victimizing them by unjustly punishing them for their father's sin. But the Bible teaches, and what God says in Ezekiel 18, is that the law gives us personal responsibility. And that law of personal responsibility is illustrated in three generational examples. And so that's what we looked at mainly last week in the first part of Ezekiel 18. So we have a righteous man who does justice and righteousness, and he lives because of his righteousness. His righteousness, he shall live. But his son is wicked. And because he is wicked, this wicked son does wickedness. And he dies because of his abominations. He dies for his own sins. His own sins are upon him. His blood shall be on his own hands for what he did. Now his father does not die for his son's sins. Nor does, does the son live because of his father's righteousness. So any thought that you have that you're going to be saved and get to heaven because your parents are Christians, because of how your parents lived or your grandparents lived, that's unbiblical. It's not true. You will live or die based upon your own righteousness or wickedness. Now, this wicked son has a son of his own, and he does not follow in his father's wickedness. In fact, he sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. So what's the result? He he lives because of his righteousness. His wicked father dies for his own sin, but the righteous son lives because of his own righteousness. In verse 20, you can see the summary, the verse right before we began to read. Verse 20 says this, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Here it is. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what, what we need to see in this is the righteousness of God's justice. The righteousness of God's justice. You won't be punished for anyone else's sin. 
Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that your parents' sins will not be held against you? Are you thankful that your children's sins will not be held against you? And all God's people said, amen. These wicked children that God has given me, (laughs) their sin will not be upon my head. Now, uh, there's responsibility for you in the Bible to curb their wickedness, to discipline your children, to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and you will be held responsible for doing that faithfully. But they are responsible for their actions. You're responsible for your actions. And the, the, the responsibility and the punishment doesn't cross over. That's good news. That's, that's great news. Which also means that the nation that you live in, you're not responsible for the generations that came before for what they did. There's great comfort in that, that we are not going to be held responsible for the sins of our fathers, the rulers and the leaders that led us before. We'll be responsible for how we lead in our nation now, how we lead in our community now, how we lead in our church and our families now. We're responsible for this moment. Now, we know that generational sin does carry over in the sense that you inherit a lot of the ideas and thoughts of past generations, and you can follow in your father's wickedness. But you can also, by grace, see the wickedness of your parents and refuse to follow in the generations that have come before. But know this, no matter how the future and past generations have acted, you will not be responsible for them. You're responsible, and you will be punished for your own sin. God's justice, though, can only be a comfort to the righteous. Listen carefully. You will only be punished for your own sin, but there's a serious problem If only the righteous live and all the wicked die, what hope do you have? The Bible makes the bad news extremely plain. So Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Only the righteous shall live. By your righteousness, you will be judged and you will live. By your wickedness, you will be judged and you die. Great news, right? You're not going to be punished for anyone else's sin. Justice is great. And then you say, "Ah, but wait, I'm not righteous. In fact, the Bible makes it clear No one is righteous. I am wicked. You are wicked. All are wicked. You, me, and everyone. And because of our wickedness, we will die. So God's justice can only be a comfort to the righteous. And that would be good news and a comfort if we were righteous. But you're not. I'm not. No one is. And this is the message that social justice ignores. It ignores our individual guilt It ignores our individual need of salvation from our own sin. And it ignores the individual transformation that comes through regeneration. And instead, it focuses on the societal salvation and the systemic transformation brought about through upheaval and transformation. It wants to save the world and forget that it is sinners who need salvation, most importantly. So far in Ezekiel 18, God has defined his justice But when God does that, ultimately that leaves us hopeless. And this is the bad news of the gospel. It's the bad news of the gospel. But the rest of the chapter brings, so importantly, brings in the good news. And that's why verse 21 begins with a but. One of the best words in all of the Bible. But. 
But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So now, in verses 21 through 24, God declares the truth about repentance. God declares the truth about repentance. And the first thing he says is, if the wicked person repents of sin, he shall live. If he repents, he shall live. That's the, for the wicked person. You say, well, I don't see the word repent here. Well, you do. It's just translated differently. If a wicked person turns away. So every time you see the word turns away in this passage, you can jump down to verse 30 and realize that the word repent in verse 30 is the same Hebrew word for turn away throughout the passage. So you could say turns away every time, or you could say repent every time, or you can, you can translate it because that's what the word repent means, to turn, to turn away, to turn away from and to turn to. You, you always turn away from something and you always turn to something. That's repentance. Repentance leads to life. And the righteous person's repentance is demonstrated in his righteous deeds. The wicked person repents. And how do we know they repent? Because their actions change. It's demonstrated. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 16 and in verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize righteous people by their righteous deeds. So if a wicked person becomes righteous, how will you know they become righteous? Because they are doing righteousness. Now notice carefully, very carefully, I want you to make sure you get this distinction. The righteous person isn't saved by his righteous deeds. He is saved through repentance. He is saved by being made righteous. And because he is righteous, he does righteousness. His fundamental nature is changed, and that is demonstrated in his actions. And because of his repentance and the resulting fundamental change in his nature, leading to the righteous actions, what's the consequence? What's the summary? He shall live. If you are a wicked person going this way in wickedness, and if you see your wickedness, and you see God's wrath for the wicked sinner, and if you turn away from your wickedness, you will turn to Christ. You will repent. You will turn away. You will go the other direction. And when you turn to Christ, you will be born again by Christ, and you will be made righteous. And in that righteous condition, no longer wicked, pursuing wickedness, but now righteous, you will then pursue righteousness. That's what he is saying, not as explicit, not in all those terms, but that is the summary of this. Now, I made it clear, and so sometimes it's hard to see it in the Old Testament, but we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our works. When the wicked person turns from wickedness and turns to righteousness, and then they do righteousness, that doesn't lead to salvation. That's the result of the salvation that's come earlier. I want to make that clear. We're not saved by our works, but how does God judge us? God judges us according to our works. The righteous person shall live based upon the judgment of God upon your works. So you can sit here all day pursuing wickedness and then say, but I'm righteous. No, I'm really righteous. No, you, you, but look at your deeds. No, don't, don't pay attention to what I'm doing over here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay attention to what I say. My, I confess righteousness, but I'm doing wickedness. What, what are you? You're wicked. But if you turn away and you are righteous, what will you do? 
You will do righteousness. And by that, those actions, that's how you will be judged. By your deeds, you will be judged. But that does not mean you are saved by your actions, but you will be judged by your actions. And then, again, this, this, this is really, there's so much comfort. There's so much encouragement in this passage. It's, it, there's a mixture there. But notice also, secondly, that God takes pleasure in sinners repenting. God takes pleasure. Have I any pleasure, verse 23, in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way? There's that word repent again. Turn from his way and live. God takes pleasure in sinners repenting. God takes pleasure in mercy for the repentant. Every person who turns from wickedness and turns to righteousness, God will have mercy upon them. But I also want you to know, don't make more of this verse then you should. It doesn't say that God doesn't take pleasure in justice for the wicked. And you say, well, how can that be? How can God say, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he would take pleasure in the justice for the wicked? And I don't want to spend too much time here because this is difficult, but he repeats it twice, and so I want to answer it a little bit. Is God in heaven for eternity grieving over the punishment of the wicked in hell for eternity? Now, it says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But does he take pleasure in the justice of punishing the wicked? So I, I try to bring an illustration. Every illustration that tries to understand some deep things about God will fail at certain points. But when a serial killer... A mass murderer is put to death. Do we rejoice in the death of the wicked? You say, well, I think there have been times I've rejoiced in the death of the wicked. Well, it's a good thing you're not God. What that means is the fact that God does not take joy in just snuffing out the wicked people like you did with a magnifying glass when you were a child with the little ants. Like, There's another one, another one. <laughs> this is so much fun. I just love seeing people die. That's not God. He takes no pleasure in the death, even of the wicked. But when the wicked are punished for their sin, does God take pleasure in justice? So when the serial killer dies, are we thankful and grateful and rejoice in the fact that the justice system has worked and that a mass murder has been put to death as it rightly should be? We should. We should. We should take joy and celebrate justice. But does that mean that we're happy that someone is dead? Do we take pleasure in the person's death? No, but we do take pleasure, and we should take pleasure, in the fact that justice is done. What would you rather have? Would you rather have just uh, pleasure in injustice? Well, no, I don't want injustice. Well, then justice requires that person's blood. Genesis chapter 9 requires the death. They're a murderer. They, the, the law, the just law of God requires their death. Do we take pleasure in justice? Yes. Do we take pleasure that the justice has led to a person's death? No, but we can do both. We don't celebrate someone's death, but we celebrate justice. You say, well, you can't separate those two because those two come together. You're going to have to. And God definitely can. That's what he says in his word. That's how I understand that. So God takes pleasure in repentance. Would he rather the person turn from sin to righteousness so he might have mercy on them and give them grace and save them? Would he rather that? That's, that's the pleasure. There's pleasure in repentance. 
Not pleasure in just squashing and, and wiping out the wicked. That doesn't mean he doesn't have pleasure in justice. Now, what we have to understand is this. Salvation isn't justice. Mercy isn't justice. Grace isn't justice. So we thank God for justice, but what do all of us want and all of us desperately need? In fact, not just all of us, but every person in the world need. Do they need justice? They'll get justice. But in light of justice, what do we need? We need mercy, grace, and salvation isn't justice. So we are all crying out for social justice, and that will just leave us all desperately miserable and under the just condemnation of God. Social justice is not the end. It leaves us in desperate need of mercy and grace, forgiveness and salvation. That's why just preaching justice will leave us all hopelessly condemned and miserable. Now, in the fact that we are saved, we do want to practice justice as God's word requires it. But before we can really talk about wanting to enact justice, we need mercy. We need mercy received through the gift of repentance. Now, he goes on to say, if the righteous person repents of righteousness, he shall die. Now, you say, well, that sounds kind of strange, Pastor. If a righteous person repents of righteousness, he shall die. What's that mean? Well, let me give you my understanding. I got this from John MacArthur. Temporary, superficial righteousness ends in death. Temporary, superficial righteousness ends in death. So you might be confused. How can a righteous person turn away from righteousness and do injustice and abominations? I thought a righteous person does righteousness and a wicked person does wickedness. Didn't you just get done saying that, Pastor? Haven't you made that point explicitly clear? That your nature will lead to who you are? So if a righteous person turns away from righteousness and turns to wickedness, that's the same, the same word for repent in both places. Then my question for you, was that person truly righteous? How can a righteous person turn from righteousness? Because a righteous person does righteousness, and a wicked person does wickedness. And so if the person is righteous, and then they start doing wickedness, what are they showing? They're showing that they're not righteous. But, but they were righteous. And see, what, what God is trying to tell us here is that this person's righteousness was only temporary. It was superficial. It was only on the surface. I'm sure you've never known anybody like that before, have you? People, I mean, how many times have you, do you, you, you guys watch these criminal shows on TV, 2020, Dateline, you don't watch all those, good, it's, it's better not to get addicted to these things, true life crimes, you know, so two hours of this person and who they killed and how they found them and all, and uh, we, we, we struggle with our addiction to that kind of uh, TV show, but I love, I love the neighbor interviews, you ever seen the neighbor interviews? Remember that, uh, who's the, the guy in Cleveland that was, had three women held hostage in his, in his house for like 10, 15 years? And finally the one broke out the front door and got away. Remember, I, f- I forget his name. But they interviewed the neighbors. And all the neighbors, what they say about him? I can't believe it. He was the nicest guy, the kindest. He was a great neighbor. Like he shoveled my walk. He would mow my lawn. And these people are always the nicest, kindest, wonderful, most wonderful. You, you know, if you ever have a creepy neighbor, you know he's fine. You say, because no, no one ever has these interviews like, what happened? What happened? Well, we always knew he would have someone in the basement. You know, we always knew that something bad was going on. He was creepy. No, the creepy guys are fine. It's always the nice people you got to watch out for. Because if you're going to do something really bad and you want no one to catch you, you better be looking pretty good all the time. And, and so this superficial surface 
righteousness does not mean the person is righteous. You've also known people who've lived moral upstanding lives for a long period of time, and all of a sudden they do just something completely heinous. And you say, that's so out of character for them. Let me ask you, what was their true character? Was it the, the righteousness for all those years, or was it for this heinous crime that came later? What's truly true about someone? The Bible talks about this kind of righteousness in Isaiah 64, 6. I don't have the scripture yet to write these down. Isaiah 64, 6. It calls this kind of righteousness filthy rags, polluted garments. There is a righteousness that because of who we are inside becomes polluted because it's a righteousness not connected to a righteous heart, a righteous character. It's just good deeds from a wicked person. And we can't always see who people are in the short term, but the long term bears it out. But also, I want you to really understand this. I think this is the key point here. This ends any thinking that salvation is for those who, whose good deeds outnumber their bad deeds. Now, now, notice what can happen here. I can live a very good life for years, maybe decades, and have I built enough credit up on the side of righteousness so that I can walk over and slaughter my neighbor and throw a murder on there, but it still balances the scale. I've had three decades of righteousness, just five minutes of wickedness. I'm sure the scales are still in my favor, right? Or maybe I can commit adultery for two or three years, but I was faithful to my wife for 15 or 20, so, right, the scale's still balancing in my favor. Am I, am I correct? Is that how it works? I pile enough on one side, and I say, whew, I think I've done enough for my whole life, enough good deeds. Now I can just live wickedly for the rest of my life, and I'm still good. Would anybody think that's right? But people do think that's right, don't they? They don't put it like that, but they're always balancing the scales. And in fact, if you talk to them about their own righteousness, what will they say? I'm a, I'm a good person. Why is that? I've done more good than bad. I mean, you just take out one, you know, one or two murders, and look at all the, the good things I've done. You know, five or ten acts of, of adultery, decades of faithfulness, surely they, uh, is that true? No, it's not true. It's not true at all. And so you, you, you can't think that God is going to judge you based upon the fact that you, your righteous deeds can finally get the scale so far that you can just turn and do wickedness. No, if you're righteous and you do righteousness, you will continue to do righteousness. And so there's repentance in, in a sense that can go both ways. The wicked person repenting and the righteous, supposedly superficial, temporary righteous person repenting the other way. This is not teaching by any sense a loss of eternal security or the person who is truly saved can lose their salvation. It's the demonstration of who or what people are what people. And you can read that in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus makes those distinctions as well. So what's the Israelites' response? Verses 25 to 30. The Israelites declare God's ways unjust. So that's the truth. God gives the truth. And what do the Israelites say? That is not just. Now, what part of it's not just? Well, what's, do you think they're actually saying that if a wicked person repents and God doesn't remember their sin anymore, that's not just? God will not remember their wickedness anymore. I, I think they could be saying that. And they're saying that if a righteous person repents of righteousness and goes the other way, that, that being punished is not just? I think they could go both ways. I think every person likes the idea, and so do the Israelites, of the scales. I don't want God to just forget my sin if, if, I, if I turn to repent. What would that require? What does repentance require? 
It requires an acknowledgement that I was wicked, that I was a sinner, that I was doing what was wrong, that I can't just mix some wickedness with some righteousness and kind of pile them up. I, I would rather justify myself. I don't want to have to repent of my sin and turn. I would rather just do the scale thing my whole life. And if you say it's either all wickedness or all righteousness, either I'm wicked or I'm righteous, and the scales don't matter, I don't like that. Why? Because I know I've done wickedness. Therefore, I must be a wicked person, and I don't want to have to confess that. God is offering them life if they repent. God is promising that their sins will not be remembered against them if they repent. God is holding out the way of life, and they don't want any part of it. They just want to say, that way of life is unjust. God, you are unjust. Now, which one is it? Whose way is not just? God's or the Israelites? God asks the question twice, doesn't he? What's your answer? What God said in 21 to 24, is that just? Is, are God's ways just or are the Israelites' ways just? You're going to have to decide, aren't you? Every one of us has to decide because it will lead to our either accepting God's ways and responding the way God tells us to respond or rejecting God's ways and going our own way. You're going to have to pick. To receive life, you have to turn from your sins. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to confess the sins that you have committed. And what do most sinners say? Sin? Committed? Me? I haven't sinned. I'm not guilty. I'm good. To receive life, you have to agree with what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 9, 33. Yet you, God, you, God, have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Who's righteous and who's wicked? You have to say, God, you are righteous and we are wicked. But the Israelites won't acknowledge their sin. They refuse to agree with God. They refuse to give up their self-justification, their moral high ground. And therefore, God declares judgment on Israel. God declares judgment on Israel. What does he say in verse 30? Now notice, they're judging God. I just want you to see that. When someone says God is unjust, what are they doing? God is wicked. That God, I would never worship that kind of God. That God, that God is, is worse. That God is horrible. What are they doing? They put themselves on the seat of judgment. They've made themselves God, thinking that they can judge God. But God says, no, you're not going to judge me. I, I will judge you. And how will he judge them? This is what I said earlier. He will judge everyone according to his ways. God judges us according to our works, according to our actions. That's the judgment of God. Every one of you will be judged according to your ways. No sinner will escape God's judgment. And what does he say? And what does he say throughout the whole chapter? The soul whose sins shall die, and they shall die for whose sins? Their own sins. But God is not yet done. Therefore, neither am I. <laughs> Verses 30 through 32. And praise God, he's not done. Because I said, this is the part where the best news has come. There's already been great news in 21 through 24. But here in 30 through 32, God offers grace. God offers grace. And he does so, first of all, by commanding repentance. Repentance is commanded. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. We have this notion that somehow God just offers salvation out there, and, and we've been taught this a lot. I know the illustration. God, 
that salvation is a free gift. The Bible makes that clear. And so God holds out the gift, uh, a free gift of salvation, and all you have to do is take it. That's not quite how the Bible says it. The Bible says it this way. Hey, there's a gift under the tree. It's a free gift of salvation for all, all who receive it. I'm telling you, take it. Why would you have to command someone to take a gift? Because the gift is wrapped up in repentance. And you have to command sinners to repent. But you only receive that gift through repentance. And so he commands you to repent. Obedience to God is your only hope. You say, well, I don't want obedience. I just want salvation. He says, repent. You must repent. And everyone who refuses to repent will be doomed forever. That's the bad news. But the good news is that if you repent, you shall live. You shall receive the gift of life. If you don't, iniquity will be your ruin. You've got to hear it, the bad news and the good news. God offers grace, but he offers it through a command to repent. And then he gives the requirements again. Requirements are reiterated. Who's the person that lives? The person who does righteousness is the person who lives. So what do we have to do? Repentance is not enough because you have to repent and turn from something and turn to something. When you turn to something, that will show up in your actions. He says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Don't just turn from them. Get rid of them. Don't just say, I, I, I confess my sin and then keep living in it. You can't say, God, save me. You have to cast it away. You have to rid yourself from the evil. And then he goes on to say, make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That, that's the command again. Cast away. Make yourself. Now here it gets really tricky. You must really pay attention. Focus in. Don't lose, don't lose track yet. This is impossible. Have you tried to get rid of all your sin? Have you tried to turn over a new leaf? Have you tried to become a better person? Have you come to realize that... that that there is sin, that you are wicked, that these sins that you commit not only are wicked, but they destroy your relationships, they destroy your marriage, they destroy your relationship with your kids or your parents, they destroy things at school, they destroy things at work, you've messed up your life, you've received all the bad consequences, and you don't want those consequences, you don't want that sin anymore, and so you say, I'm going to change, I'm going to stop doing that, and you try to cast away that habit, those nasty, sinful, wicked, destructive habits in your life, and you put them off for a day, you put them off for two days, and you're like, yeah, I'm gritting my teeth, I'm going to do the right thing, get rid of those sins. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, when you stretch that rubber band and then you let go, what happens? One day you fall and there you are again. No, I'm going to cast away. I was going to start again. And you come to realize after years of effort, I can't cast away the sin from me. I can't get rid of my sin. I can't, I can't cleanse myself from sin. And then, and then you're telling me, God, I have to make for myself a new heart and give myself a new spirit? Who can do that? That is impossible. And you know what? This is God preaching to you the good news. The good news that it's impossible for you to do what God demands. It's impossible. So what do you need? You need God. What God requires you cannot fulfill with God, all things are possible. A new heart? Who, who does that? God? A new spirit? Who does that? God? Cleansing you from all sin? Wiping you clean? Washing you clean? Scrubbing you up? Making you new? Who does that? 
God? You don't do that. God does that. That's the good news. God gives us these impossibilities so that you say to God, God, I can't. I can't do that. I can't save myself. I can't cleanse myself. I can't change myself. I can't change the inner core of who I am. And he says, you're right, but I can. Will you trust me? Will you cry out to me? Will you depend on me? Will you turn to me? Will you rely on me? Will you have faith in me and me alone and not in yourself? And you must say today, yes, God, I will. I will trust in you for all of that. And listen to the promises. There's, it's given twice in Ezekiel. So right in the same book, Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20, write these passages down. They are so important. Study them later. What does God say? I will give them, who? His people, those who repent, those who turn to them, him, one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Notice what God will do when you repent and turn to him. He will do all of it. He will transform you on the inside and then transform you on the outside. You will walk in his statutes. You will obey his commands because he's casting away all that sin from you. He's cleaning you up. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. See that? He's going to wash you clean. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit. This is the Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you are walking with the Lord, if you have turned from sin and turned to righteousness, if you are a righteous person with a new heart and a new spirit, where did that come from? God. Who gave it to you? God. Who are you trusting in? God. And that is the salvation and the sanctification that comes from God alone as a gift to you. So you must repent. And that leads us to one final plea. If that's all true, and God is true, may every man be a liar. If that's all true, why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you continue in wickedness? Why will you not turn? And it repeats it. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Turn and live. It's a final plea. Turn and live. Repent and trust in Christ. Turn and live. Don't die. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Turn from rebellion and turn to Christ. Turn from your own way and turn to Christ. If you repent, if you, would, if you turn, you will live. Cry out to God for the gift of repentance and live. If you're not a Christian, I've said it, I've said it, and I'll end with this. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Receive a new heart it's a gift he gives it and a new spirit as a free gift and walk in God's ways. How will you be able to walk in God's ways? Because if he gives you a new heart and a new spirit, he will cause you to obey his commandments. He will cause you to walk in his ways. Trust him. It's a life of faith. Sanctification is a life of faith, trusting in Christ, trusting in God to do in you what you can't do in yourself. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, you can rejoice. You can rejoice in what God has done for you. You can give God all the glory for every bit of sanctification. The fact that you have changed, the fact that you have been transformed, the fact that you don't do those wicked sinful habits that you used to do. Who gets the glory? Who did that in you? Who transformed your life? All the glory goes to God. But also, they say, I don't see those blanks at all. You're correct. Remember also that you are God's people proclaiming God's message of repentance to sinners. And notice the Israelites' response to the good news. 
Sinners will stubbornly resist God's offer of grace so many times, the vast majority. But that doesn't mean that every time, all of them will resist. Some will turn. Some will repent. Some will turn from wickedness and turn to righteousness. Some will turn from sin and turn to Christ. Our job is not to save them. Our job is to proclaim truly the gospel message that they are a sinner in need of a savior and their only hope is repentance and faith in Christ. And we proclaim it and we proclaim it and we claim God's promise that he will save, that he will build this church, that he will do his work in our relatives, in our kids, in our grandkids, in our parents, in our aunts and uncles. He will do his work and we trust him. But we do know that they will stubbornly resist because they hate the gospel until God gives them a new heart and a new mind to see the truth and believe. And we pray for God to do that work in every person. Open doors for the gospel. Soften their hearts. Cause them to see. Give them the eyes of faith that they might turn and live. Father, help us as a church and as individuals to preach this gospel message, the saving gospel, not the social gospel. Help us to understand and emphasize grace. But to emphasize grace, we do have to emphasize justice, God's justice, and what every sinner deserves. But what God and his grace, what you and your grace have given, will transform the world. May we proclaim it, may we live it, may we teach it to our kids. May you transform lives and save souls for your glory even this moment, in this place, through this message. In Jesus' name, amen.